warm-up question. Everybody clap your hands. Because I saw some of you doing that during worship. What is worship? What is worship? Go. Who's got the answer? Worship is surrender. I'll accept that. What else? Emotion. Devotion. Devotion. Yeah? Honoring the Lord. What was this? Contention. Attention. Attention. An expression of love to God. Fitting sacrifice. Loving sacrifice. Living sacrifice. There's some sacrifice involved. I get it. Bowing down before the Lord, yeah. There are all sorts of hands over here. Quite it. Exaltation of someone higher, yeah, right. Recognition of something greater. All right, all, all very good uh, answers. Um, and uh, the different ways to answer that, you know, instead of saying things that are definitive, you could say things that are sort of um, descriptive. Uh, what is worship? Well, it's really, really important. <laughs> Might be a different way to answer that question, or it's really vital. Uh, but then you have to ask, well, why? Why is it so important? Why do we give space doing it every Sunday and, and stuff like that? Uh, tweaked question, slightly different way to do it. Do you think worship is more celebration or more humiliation? How many say celebration? How many say humiliation? How many say both? How many say nothing? Fantastic. Always looking for the trick question. Uh, well, keep that in mind. Um, we, uh, we haven't talked about this lately, but we used to talk about this a lot. Something that we sort of uh, self-absorbedly called the blue water path. Um, which is just, we... We're trying to think of a way to kind of describe the arc of a life with God. And so we came up with this idea uh, as a path. And uh, it's, you know, it's, it's just kind of a convenient way to think of things. There's nothing that's absolute about it. But, but, but here's the path of development uh, when, you follow, when you're following God, generally speaking. You start out as a seeker. Um, hopefully, you start out as a seeker. Uh, if... Uh, if you're one of those people that kind of, you know, like when you're young, for various reasons, cultural or familial, you accept God without ever seeking God, then sometimes later in life you get into trouble because you've never learned how to seek. And then something challenging happens to you, and because you have no seeking capacity, you just fall apart. You just fall apart. You're, you're not able to seek after truth or to seek after faith. And, but, but typically, you kind of start with being a seeker. What is true? Uh, is there a God? Who is God? What is God like? And that seeking is something that you should never lose, no matter how mature you are with the Lord. And then at some point, if all goes well, as you're seeking after the Lord, you become a follower of the Lord. And that transition from just sort of seeker to follower is often like the biggest transition in a person's life. Because that's the point at which you decide that God will be Lord. That Jesus will actually be master of your life. And of course that's a really big deal. Everything changes at that point. You have to start listening to what God says and inconvenient stuff like that. So seeker, follower. And then soon after you become a follower, uh, if things work out decently for you, uh, you learn to be a servant. You have to become a servant. And in seeking, you know, that's kind of where you learn a capacity for truth. And in following, well, that's kind of how you learn a capacity for faith or devotion or faithfulness, stuff like that. When you become a servant, that's often where you learn the capacity for love, uh, where you uh, just prefer the people around you to yourself. You serve other people's interests to yourself. And so that's a big transition in life as well. Seeker follower, you start following Jesus, you learn very quickly that you have to be a servant if you're going to do what he says and do what he did. Seeker, follower, servant, and then the next step 
um, is one that often gets glossed over by people. I think you have to learn to become a worshiper as you follow uh, the Lord. And, and what, what is a worshiper? Well, I mean, it's everything that, that you just said. It's learning to submit to the Lord, but not just to submit and, and like becoming a follower, but to kind of submit with a little bit of passion and heart in it. You know, it's one thing to accept the commands of God. It's another thing to fall on your face before God. You know, it's, I think worship is, is in some ways like the most human development because it engages all that stuff that makes us human instead of a computer program. You know, all of our emotions. You have to, worship is where, where you learn to put some passion in things. And I don't necessarily mean like emotional expressiveness because, well, you know me, I'm not given to a lot of emotional expressiveness. <laughs> you noticed? Um, but I mean, it's where you learn to put your heart in things, you know, where you learn to make things uh, definitive. Um, I define worship as the point in which you stop calculating. Uh, my favorite story of worship in scripture is um, the, the woman of uh, apparently some ill repute who comes and breaks the alabaster jar uh, uh, in front of Jesus and kind of anoints him with, with nard, this really, really expensive perfume. Uh, she, this alabaster jar would have perf of perfume would have been that woman's dowry uh, for the thing that, that she held so that uh, she could give it to the husband who gives her marriage and brings her into his home. In, in making that little sacrifice to the Lord, that gesture to anoint him with perfume before he goes into Jerusalem and dies, that woman was essentially sacrificing her chance to get married in life which in that day and age meant sacrificing her future, you know, her economic well-being and all of that because, you know, women had certain roles and only certain roles in that culture. And the disciples in that story, those of you who know the story, they kind of get offended because that jar would have been worth somewhere around the cost of, like, in modern money, about $50,000. And so it was, like, an incredible greeting card. I mean, you know, it was like over the top uh, what she did. And they were like, that's stupid. Uh, she could have given us the jar and we would have sold it and used that money to take care of poor people and stuff like that, which is, you know, an argument that I would have been sympathetic to. Uh, it's like, yeah, I mean, do something practical and meaningful with that story. And Jesus intervenes and says, stop it. Wherever the gospel is preached in the future, people will tell her story. She has done something beautiful for me. And that's the thing about beauty. It's like it's hard to calculate beauty. It's hard to define it. It's hard to put a value on it. I mean, you kind of value it or you don't. And Anyway, my point is there was, there was no calculation in that story. If she had stopped to calculate what she was doing, she wouldn't have done it. And at some point in your walk with God, you'll, you'll encounter a moment like that where if you stop and begin to calculate carefully costs and benefits and all that stuff, you won't go forward. You'll stall out. You understand what I'm saying? And Jesus is like, no, she gets it, you know. Call it a point of beauty if you want to. Call it a point of passion if you want to. Call it a point of worship, of not just sacrifice, but reckless sacrifice uncalculated sacrifice. You'll have those moments in life. Maybe some of you have already had those moments. I can't even justify why I'm doing this anymore. But God is God, and I'm going to do it. Worship. All right, worship. And if you get that, then you be get to become what I call a minister, which is just kind of my shorthanded way of saying, then you get to fulfill your calling. Then you get to become what God has designed you to be in the world. You get to have the impact on the world that the Lord meant for you to have. 
uh, but a lot of people stall out at the worship point. I find that more people stall out there than anywhere else. Uh, if you break through that, uh, then, then you can do anything. Why? Well, because, because you'll do anything, because uh, you'll give anything. And, and there's this uh, old Celtic proverb that some of you may have heard. I've quoted it before. Never give a sword to a man who can't dance. You know that one? Uh, never give a sword to a man who can't dance. I've loved that proverb because I, 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 th I think what it means is um, uh, never arm anyone, uh, never arm a man if he can't forget himself. You know, and our image of the warrior is kind of the tough, dignified guy that would, I mean, you know, it's an Irish proverb, so I think of river dance, you know. It's like, it's like you never see some, some, you know, warrior, river dance. No, I'm not going to do that again. It's, um, I actually saw that musical river dance once, and I was kind of watching the guys. Uh, they took off their shirts, and they were wearing lycra tights, and they were dancing like that. And I said, yeah, warriors wouldn't do that. It's, you know, so I, 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 I see the point. Um, but uh, if you're that kind of you know, tough guy, you're like, yeah, give me, give me a blade. But you can't kind of dance and laugh and, and forget yourself and stuff like that. Um, presumably without use of liquor, um, then you're not really, you're not safe because a man who can't forget himself in celebration is going to be unable to forget himself in battle. And in battle, you need to be able to forget yourself. You need to be able to charge the line recklessly, not thinking about whether you're going to survive or not because that's a guy that you want next to you in line, right? You want a guy to be able to forget himself. Um, if you can't occasionally sacrifice your dignity, then you're too full of yourself and apt to be dangerous if, if you're armed, dangerous if you become powerful. I'm sort of waxing philosophical this morning, but are you following me so far? Worship, yeah. Well, today we're going to talk about worship, and probably the most famous worshiper in the Bible, King David. We're in a sermon series on King David, and and here's the thing, here's a, the thesis statement. Uh, with respect to worship, uh, worship can be dangerous. And you want to be careful uh, how you approach it. Uh, we've reached the point in the story where David, after kind of being anointed king, but then a lot of things going wrong, and him being an outlaw for somewhere, you know, maybe, maybe 10 years or something like that, we're not exactly sure. Uh, but finally, King Saul, who has been trying to kill David, himself gets killed in a battle, and Jonathan gets killed in the battle. And what happens is all the elders go to David, and they're like, look, you probably should have been king uh, all along, so we're recruiting you now. We're going to make you king. So David becomes king. He kind of sets up in Hebron for a while, and then he decides he's going to uh, conquer Jerusalem because it's... Uh, it's not in the hands of the Israelites at the time, so, so he does that. And, and so th the prophecy has come true. David has become king, um, uh, formally has become king. He's been a leader in Israel informally for some time, but now he formally becomes king. And he sets out to sort of establish things rightly. The country has been in chaos under Saul, uh, and, uh, but now that Saul is dead and David has been recruited into the kingship, and he's sort of conquered Jerusalem, he's setting up a new capital, he fights off the Philistines, and he's trying to set the kingdom in order, but he's trying to set the kingdom in order before God. Uh, and one way he's, he's going to do that is he's going to bring this thing called the Ark of the Covenant into the capital city. Uh, now the Ark of the Covenant, if you know your Old Testament uh, history, uh, was, was a, a chest, like a, a, a wooden chest sort of coated with gold, and uh, the, the original Ten Commandments tablets were in there, and a jar of manna, and Aaron's staff, some relics of Israel's uh, most famous miracles in history. But more importantly, it's kind of like the seat of God's presence on earth. It's the place, where, uh, uh, the place in which God has promised to kind of congregate His presence at all times. So, so a, a very holy relic. Um, and the ark was made about 400 years before David uh, came along. So even in, in, in his lifetime, it was a rather 
uh, old uh, relic. And the Ark of the Covenant came with a lot of special instructions about how to use it and where to put it and how to house it, house it and, and all this. Um, you guys heard of the Ark of the Covenant? Um, if you don't know scripture but you know Indiana Jones movies, you'll still get the idea. Uh, that is kind of a, a powerful relic with a lot of spiritual presence uh, about it. All right. Uh, about 70 years before David became king, the Israelites lost a battle to the Philistines. The Philistines had been beating them up for a long time. And in that battle, it was a pretty big battle, Israel lost 4,000 soldiers. 4,000 Israelites were killed. So it was a pretty decisive uh, battle. And so they regrouped after the battle, by the battle and they said, I know, I, I got it. What we're going to do this time is we're going to carry the Ark of the Covenant into battle with us. Because if we, if we bring the presence of God into battle, then we will surely win. So they did that. Uh, they, they picked up the Ark of the Covenant and they went to battle the Philistines again with their holy relic in their midst. And they got their butts kicked again. Only this time they lost 30,000 soldiers. They got just destroyed. And the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant, which was just anathema. It was just unthinkable. And the Philistines took the Ark, the seat of God's presence, into Philistine territory. But no sooner had they done that uh, than they started getting into trouble. Wherever the ark was, everybody in the vicinity got tumors, it said. don't know exactly what that was, but it must have been striking and unsightly. They didn't have MRIs. They got like really obvious tumors on their body, and they died. And plague broke out uh, wherever God's presence was among the Philistines. So, you know, there's a lesson in that probably. Like, if you're going to be around the presence of God, don't do it like a Philistine, you know. Don't do it like a pagan and say, oh, we captured uh, God's ark. Our God is superior to Jehovah or Yahweh or whatever word that they used. Didn't work out for them. Uh, so what they did is that they put the ark on a wagon. They hitched two cows to the wagon. They pointed their cows back toward Israel, whipped them on the backside, and the cows wandered off to Israel just like they knew what to do. And, and uh, they, they went to this, they went in Israel territory, uh, went to this guy's home, his homestead, and, uh, and the Israelites welcomed the ark, back, the ark back into their territory, and for their trouble, the cows were killed and sacrificed to God. There could be a sermon on that. But, um, and for 70 years, the ark stayed there in this family home of this guy named Abinadab. Uh, some pregnancies in the congregation, and I'm always looking for good baby names. Abinadab. Abinadab. Um, as part of David's ordering of the kingdom, he wants to bring that ark, which has been at this family's house, uh, back to the center, back to the capital city. Uh, in a way, David is trying to build a church for his people. So we pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 6. It's going to be in your program. It's going to be up in the big board. Whew, that was a lot of background history. So this is how that story goes. Um, David, again, brought together all the able young men of Israel. 30,000. He and all his men went to uh, Baliah in Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, where it had been staying all these decades, uh, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim and the Ark. Uh, they set the Ark of God on a new cart. They built a special wagon for the experience and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, we're guiding the new cart with the Ark of God on it. They're kind of driving, I imagine it was a team of oxen or something, and they're kind of, they're kind of the escorts. Uh, this family has, has housed the Ark for decades, and so the two, two sons, their name means strength and friendly, you know, uh, two impressive guys. They're sort of escorting it as family representatives. And oh, Ahio was walking in front of it, 
David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. Uh, hey, worship guys, can we get some sistrums in the band next week? That would be awesome. Uh, when they came to the threshing floor of Nakon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled and he didn't want the ark to, to fall off the wagon. So he reaches out and touches it. Well, there were rules against touching the ark of the Lord uh, with, with your hands. Again, if you've seen the Indiana Jones movie, you don't, you don't make contact uh, with, with the ark of the covenant. He was trying to, you know, prevent disaster, but he sort of touches the ark and the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Dangerous business. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah, uh, which, you know, rough translation would be like, bummer for Uzzah. Um, David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He's just really frustrated, as you might be, if you planned a worship celebration and uh, someone got killed by God, whom you were worshiping with all your might. He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. So instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Um, the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, dot, dot, dot. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. That actually went well. There were no tumors. There were no people dying spontaneously around the chest. Uh, Obed-Edom, the Gittite, you might not know this, but he would... He came from a family of Levites, a family of priests, the people who were supposed to be taking care of the ark. So, you know, and God liked that, evidently. Now, King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. David's like, oh, he blessed his household? Well, I got to get me some of that. I'm going to go get the ark, bring it uh, to uh, the capital in my house. And when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Well, now notice that something has changed. The ark of God is no longer on a wagon. People are carrying the ark of God. Uh, and you might not know this if you don't know uh, the history of the tabernacle, but the way you carried the ark of God was on long poles that were specially designed for it. Um, and uh, we don't get this in, in the Second Samuel version of the story, but here's the First Chronicle 15 version of the story. This is David speaking, and he says, it, would be, it was because you, the Levites, did not bring it up the first time that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us and killed Uzzah. We did not inquire of him about how to do it in the prescribed way. So the priests and Levites consecrated themselves in order to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, and the Levites carried the ark of God with the poles on their shoulders in accordance with the word of the Lord. So he goes back, he reads the scriptures, and he's like, let's do this the right way. Let's do this the way that, the, that God had prescribed it in the first instance. So that's what's going on uh, in the story. And to go further than that, uh, when those who were carrying the ark took six steps, David sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf on the seventh step. Uh, wearing a linen ephod, in other words, wearing his underwear, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. And the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David. Michael, daughter of Saul, remember her? David's first wife, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord in his underwear, she despised him in her heart. 
uh, skipping down in the story, when David returned home from the big celebration to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, Oh, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. Uh, Hello, dear. You're despicable. That's kind of how that went. You humiliated our family. And David said to Michael, "Mm, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father. Or anyone from his house, Michael, when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children. Uh, to the day of, of her death. Uh, it's kind of a severe adventure in worship, this story. It'd be one way that I described it. You know, I mean, there's singing, there's dancing, there's sacrificing, and then there's the occasional sudden death. It's a lot like worship team rehearsal. Um, and uh, I don't know, you, can go, you can go through the story and sort of examine all the various causes and, and effects. In the first instance, David's going to bring back the ark, and he does it grandly. I mean, he's got like 30,000, says young men. In other words, 30,000 soldiers, you know, the most powerful, impressive people uh, in, in his, at his disposal. They get this new tricked-out cart, this wagon. Uh, you get this killer band. I mean, you've got all of these instruments uh, playing together. You've got Uzzah and Ahio, dignitaries from the, from the keeper's house. Um, impressive, pleasant guys, uh, evidently. Everything is going well uh, until the oxen stumble and Uzzah reaches out and says, oh, oh, I gotcha, I gotcha, and then he dies and David freaks out and he gets angry and he gets afraid. It's like, I was doing the best I could. I mean, I put everything I could into this production. We were going to do this the right way and I'm just trying to honor you, God, and you just kill a guy. Just out and kill a guy that's not nice. That's not nice. And by the way, I'm a little afraid right now because evidently from time to time you just kill guys. And, uh, you know, in the middle of worship, I mean, where are you more innocent than in the middle of worship? And it's just a freaky moment, you know? It's just a freaky moment. And I appreciate David's anger and I appreciate David's fear. Have you ever done anything with the Lord with all your might? With all your might, it says, and have it just blow up in your face and just humiliate you in front of thousands of people. Well, maybe, maybe not you. I have. Um, but just felt really humiliated. I mean, you were doing it with all your might and it didn't go well. Um, what's your reaction to those moments? Well, I mean, you kind of get offended at God. It's like, oh, come on. Come on. And then you have this second thought, which is, well, I guess I can't be angry at God, dot, 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 he might kill me. You know, it's very emotionally complex uh, what's going on uh, for for David right now. He does the best thing he can do at the moment, the best thing he can think of. He's like, well, look, there's this guy from a Levite family, sort of a tradition of priesthood. Let's just park the ark uh, with him, and I'm just going to go back home and have a beer. It doesn't say that, but... I'm pretty sure that's what he did. Um, uh, you know, what did Uzzah do wrong? You know, I mean, it, it was sort of an innocent mistake, right? I mean, technically you're not supposed to touch the Ark of the Covenant, but there's a principle here. Um, God does not need grandness. He does not need a huge entourage and a killer band. He just wants reverence. You know, it's like, if you're really serious about my presence, then you gotta, you got to be serious about reverence. you got to be willing to kind of honor how I say to, to do it. Uh, and that, was the, that was the mistake. If, if you think that you can 
merely approach God in, in the way that suits you, uh, then you, you might be making a mistake. If you're going to really approach God, I mean, get to the seat of his presence, which is what the Ark of the Covenant was about, you know, the very heavy presence of God, then you've got to be willing to I don't know, lower yourself a little bit. I love, I love the, the testimony that Andy, uh, or Andy shared earlier about his experience at the Holy Spirit retreat. It's like, you know, it's just all really, really weird, uh, but I decided to check my cynicism at the door, you know, to be willing to humble myself a little bit. And then he said, and we got to the ministry time on Saturday night, and I ended up, you know, crushed on the floor into the presence of God. And he said, yada, yada, yada. He may have skipped some details there. Um, but it was, a, it was a blessing to him. And I mean, that's, that's, it's a nice metaphorical story. It's like if you really want to draw into the presence of God, you often find yourself humble and on the floor, so to speak. And there's some reverence in that, right? Um, I like the way he described it. It's like, sort of like God was holding him by his neck and holding him down until he calmed down and just sort of accepted what the Lord wanted to give. And he used language that was almost violent in its nature. Of course, we all understood that he was blessed by the experience. This is a violent story. You know, God is serious about this stuff because he doesn't want you to miss the importance of, no, God is God, you are not God. And sometimes that lesson is really, really hard for us to get. Sometimes we forget him. And we can even make innocent mistakes. Um, you know, it turns out they should not have put the ark on a cart. They should have been carrying it on poles uh, because the burden of God's presence in the world always rests on the shoulders of people. You can't just build a monument. You can't just build a cart and think that God is there. No, God is, God is here. And we who follow Jesus, I think, understand that even better than they did back in the day because we carry God within, truth within, love, and even the power of God's presence, the Holy Spirit uh, within. But we are, we are the temple. And even back then, God was beginning to teach his people basic lessons in that. And we are to respect the people who carry God's presence not because of their flashiness or grandness, but because of the burden they bear. He wanted to make that very clear even then. And the second, the ark was never to be touched. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> David got over the temptation to blame God uh, for the mess, and when it turned out that Obed-Edom's household was, was blessed, he decided to give it a, a, another, another try. Um, he had done some homework and figured out his procedural mistakes, his principal mistakes, uh, which wasn't hard to figure out. Uh, it was just negligence that he didn't do it the first time, probably. And the second procession is really cool. Um, this time, uh, he throws in a, another wrinkle. He's got people carrying it. Everything is happening properly. And they take six steps. And every six steps, David makes a sacrifice. He kills a couple of animals. What's that about? Well, in, in Hebrew numerology, six is the number of of incompletion. It's the number of, of humankind. Six is as far as you can go without God's help. It's as far as you can go without seven, without the Sabbath, without the Lord's day. So he was kind of poetically, metaphorically saying, um, I know my place and I'm going to give space for God, which is kind of what he didn't do in the first instance. Um, so he, he, may, he may have overdone it, I mean, you know, thousands of sacrifices on the road. It must have taken forever, but I appreciate the gesture. And it's very David, who is super passionate and often an over-the-top uh, sort of guy. Um, and, and, and the mission is successful. They get the ark to the capital city and amidst great rejoicing. Nowhere in, in this story uh, is there any solemnness or bitterness. There's the first... There's the first freak-out moment, but then David kind of submits to the process, and he does it with great rejoicing. Uh, and we see him out there dancing in his underwear, half-naked, as his wife puts it. 
as were all the other men in the procession, no doubt. You know, I'm sure it wasn't just David out there dancing in his skivvies. Um, the king made himself very common, in other words. No royal robes, no, no pontifical hat, none of that. Uh, he's just out there dancing in his boxers and t-shirt, um, just like the other guys. And when the wife, uh, Michael, Saul's daughter, sees this, she despised him in her heart, yeah? I got to say, um, I, I really feel for her. I totally do. Because there's a backstory here, you know, we have to appreciate it as well. And nobody around David, nobody involved in his life has had an easy time of it. You know, we followed the story so far in the sermon series, and Michael has not had an easy time of it. She, the first thing we know about Michael is that she fell in love with David. She really, really loved this guy. That's the first thing we're told about her many chapters back. And she really wanted to marry him. And, and David said, yeah, you know, all right, that sounds good to me, uh, but not at no price. Uh, I'm going to, that was... Saul struck a deal with him that he had to pay a bride price of 100 Philistine foreskins. Remember that sermon? And David's like, done. And he actually comes back with 200 Philistine foreskins. Don't know how he carried them, but, you know, it's very barbaric culture. And, yeah, we talked about that earlier. But in other words, this grand gesture, like, yeah, I, I, really, I really value you too, Michael. And Michael becomes his first wife, and, and it's, just, it's, not, it's, it's a nice little love story, the, the barbarity notwithstanding. And then David has to flee Saul for his life, and Michael doesn't get to go. I mean, she couldn't live out there, and so she just gets shunted to the side, and, um, and then eventually she's given to another guy a guy that had been loyal to Saul, a guy named Paltiel. Just, just dehumanized and treated like a piece of property, in other words. And that's what she's done for the last 10 or 12 years. You know, she had to make a life for her, for her there. And then after Saul dies and David sort of comes to the throne, Saul's general, Abner, tries to make peace with, with David. And this is what David says to him, says to Abner after the gesture. He says, well, good. I'm glad that, I'm glad that you're into me now. I will make an agreement with you. But I demand one thing of you, Abner. Do not come into my presence unless you bring Michael, the daughter of Saul, when you come to see me. I want her back. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Ish try to say that, son of Saul, demanding, give me my wife Michael, whom I betrothed to myself for the price of a hundred Philistine foreskins. So Ishbosheth gave orders and had her taken away from her husband, Paltiel, son of Laish. And that's how Michael comes back to David. That must have been very emotionally cumbersome, that whole thing, you know. I don't know what she felt. Paul Teal there, but I'm pretty sure Michael has just had enough. I'm pretty sure, you know. And, and there's a way in which David's throne about being queen of Israel must have been a bit comforting to her, given the hell that her life had been up till now. She'd been treated, treated like a piece of property. She had been utterly dehumanized and humiliated in life. And then when she sees her husband humiliating himself and humiliating the throne, her throne, she got pissed. And I get it. I totally get where she's coming from. I totally get it. And sometimes our emotions can get the better of us, right? It's a heartbreaking story. And I'm not a big fan of how David responds to her. I get it, you know. And, it's like, well, you're going to despise me. I'm worshiping the Lord, and, you know, you just, you just don't get it. You just don't understand, and evidently there's this rift between them for the rest of their lives together. It says that she doesn't have any children after that. I mean, presumably because David won't sleep with her. There's some sort of brokenness, and we're going to read a couple stories uh, in the future in this sermon series. David, uh, David was not a great family man. He had some serious problems when it came to managing his own family and loving the people in his family and, and, and a, lot of, a lot of problems with the way he treated women uh, generally and, and 
you start to kind of see it here in the story, uh, maybe. Anyway, my heart goes out to Michael because I, I kind of I get it. I mean, she was wrong. She was totally wrong. I get it. And worship is like that. You know, you drag yourself in here on Sunday morning and we're playing the song about raising hands and bowing down and you might not be in that emotional space, you know. It's like, you know, Chloe's over there dancing with ribbons. I'm not really sure how I feel about that. That's, that's, a little, that's a little undignified. And you know what I could use in life right now? I could use a little dignity because I just spent a week at work where everybody treated me like garbage and I don't want to come in here and, and feel undignified, you know? Whatever. We have, we have those sort of cumbersome emotional interactions. I mean, do you really crave humiliation at the end of your week? Um, but, but we should lower ourselves before God. You know, it, it's trouble is what I'm saying. And it can be a little dangerous because if you mess up on it, you can get yourself whacked. Or you can bring division where you want to bring healing. It's, it's, worship is dangerous. It's just dangerous. It's super vital, uh, but, it's, but it's dangerous. David's response uh, to Michael, I think, comes from a heart that has also been through the wing, ringer. He knows what it is to be publicly humiliated. He knows what failure tastes like. He knows what it means to be despised, but he also knows how to worship in all circumstances. And we've read some psalms that show, authored by David, that show that he stuck with worship uh, no matter what. And he essentially says, look, Michael, God made me great, so who, who am I to not act common? And he's right. Theologically, he's totally right. He says, I will become more undignified than this, than this and be humiliated in my own eyes, which is such a tremendous phrase. You know, it's like, this cost me. I feel the cost of dancing in my underwear. Between you and me, wife, I don't like to do that. I don't like it, but I do it anyway because it's right and because it gets to a real part of me and a real part of God, humiliated in my own eyes. You know, it's just, wow, it's just such a great phrase. It's like, that wasn't easy, what I did. It wasn't easy. I did it for a reason. Don't judge me. Don't judge me. Um, those slave girls will understand. I like that comment as well, because slave girls know what it means to be humiliated against their will to make choices to lower themselves. They're going to get it. They're going to get it. And of course, he's right. He spent most of his adult life with malcontents and criminals and ruffians, people who are used to being lowly and despised. Being uppity and royal and dignified doesn't translate to them. They appreciate David and what he's doing. He's being a good king. Um, anyway, worship means to bow down. Uh, technically, etymologically, the word used for worship uh, in these scriptures uh, literally means to, to bow down, to put yourself lower than the other person, to be lowly. And I think mostly for us, it means to drill ourselves in humility. I think worship means to drill yourself in humility, lest, lest we get misled from God by our own dignity. You know, we can be led away from God by our own dignity. And to prevent that, you drill yourself in humility, or to use the stronger word, you drill yourself in humiliation from time to time. It's really, really healthy. That's why we play the music. Music is kind of a universal language. Um, that's why we have creative expressions of worship and sacrifice and stuff. It's a drill. It's a regular practice of lowering yourself. And if you don't get it eventually. If you don't get good at it, you stall out in life and you'll never progress to the throne, the fullness of who you're called to be. That's the way of, of things because knowing that God is God and submitting to Him is, that's non-negotiable, you know. Every kid has to realize at a certain point that his or her parent knows better. You have to be willing to submit. It's hard for us, uh, but it's true. Often we tend to worship God in ways that make us feel comfortable. 
you know, we do the thing that's most suitable for us. I would encourage you from time to time to do things that are not suitable for you. Um, otherwise, you're not going to get it. You're not going to get it. I have lots of stories about me doing that. I've shared most of them. Um, but, you know, from time to time, I've, music did not come naturally to me. Um, I had to work on that. I've danced before people um, in, in worship, and I'm not very good at it. Um, a lot of you know uh, those stories. Um, David danced in his underwear, and that didn't make him particularly comfortable. So uh, don't dance in your underwear at Blue Water. I'm just going to say that now. <laughs> because I'm afraid some of you will be comfortable. <laughs> Come on, you know who I'm talking about. So chill out there. But if you don't challenge yourself from time to time, in a way that makes you feel undignified, then probably uh, you've, you've missed something. Um, David was willing to humiliate himself in his own eyes to feel really undignified. But he got the presence of God back. And I think the question is, what would you be willing to do to have the presence of God at the center of your life or your household? What would you be willing to do Ultimately, what you have to do is worship. You have to get to that place beyond calculation. That's where the passion comes from. That's where this, the passion comes from to do the rest of it. From uh, Psalm 132, uh, which uh, is of David, inspired by him at least, and is connected to the story. Um, O oh Lord, remember David and all the hardships he endured, it says in the psalm. He swore an oath to the Lord and made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will not allow sleep to my eyes, no slumber to my eyelids, until I find a place for the Lord." It was a psalm written, inspired by this story of bringing the ark back and ultimately trying to build a temple for the ark to, to live in. Um, but I like the way the psalm says it better. It doesn't mention any of that. It just says, I will, I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will not allow sleep to my eyes, no slumber to my eyelids. In other words, I won't, I won't go a day without finding a place for the Lord in my day, you know, um, finding a way to kind of recognize God as God. Do you have that place in your day? I mean, before you close your eyes at night, have you taken a moment, created some space to just sort of bow down before God? Do you have a little ritual like that? Do you have a method or a means like that? Because if you don't, you'll probably stall out in life, you know, you'll probably get your, your, faith, your faith will ultimately die for lack of passion. <laughs> you, you have to keep it up, you know. Uh, one of the things <clears throat> that uh, Tony and I are doing uh, together recently is before we go to sleep at night, we read a psalm together. We've done different things uh, over the years, and that's just kind of what we're doing uh, right now. Um, but we do it <clears throat> right, uh, right when we go to bed because that's the only point during the day when we know that we won't have anything else to do. <laughs> um, and often it's the point of the day where I'm most tired and grumpy, so there are, there are drawbacks. Um, but uh, I like reading the Psalms because they're just so rich uh, emotionally. <clears throat> 60, 65% of them begin with complaint <laughs> and outrage and raging against life or occasionally complaining about the Lord and then they kind of always end with, a, but I know that you're faithful, you're higher than I am, and I just want to acknowledge that. And that's a good thing to do uh, in, in your day. No matter how much complaint you have or anger you have, you come up with a way of saying, but you're high, I'm relatively low, let's just get that settled, now I can go to bed. I suggest something like that for you. Um, 
And then I suggest every once in a while you figure out a way to lower yourself uh, before the Lord. I was having a really, really, really crappy week a few weeks ago. And have you ever been so angry that you can't even pray to God? Or just so scared that you don't even know if you want to follow him anymore? Have you ever been there? Um, I, the, typically, the only emotion I will express is, is anger because, you know, I'm a guy. And uh, so when I get scared, I get angry. Or when I get disappointed, I get angry. And that's kind of what it is. So I, I was just in an angry mood. And, and I, I was like, I, I don't even feel like I can pray. I don't even feel like I can speak. And I was just getting frustrated and pacing around the office. So what I did is I just uh, stopped and um, I just knelt down and put my face on the ground for about 60 seconds. And that was my entire prayer time for the day. <laughs> that was all I could do. Um, if that's all you can do, I think that's the right thing to do. Lower yourself. If you do it physically, sometimes your emotions and your spirit follow. No matter how mad you are, no matter how much complaint that you have, no matter how disillusioned or disappointed. You following me? I think there are probably folks here that need to get free from wounds associated with disappointment or anger or humiliation. Something has happened in life that's made you feel terribly dehumanized. Stuff like this. Um, and maybe like, you know, maybe like Michael, you've reserved a little something in your heart like, God will treat me with dignity or else. Uh, maybe it's been subtler than that. Or maybe you've just kind of been skating along in your relationship with the Lord and you just, you just, you've let the reverence seep out of you because it's just, there's no space for it. You know, you're kind of stuck in what you're stuck in. Uh, and if you're in that place, maybe you kind of feel what I'm, what I'm talking about. It might not be intuitive to you, but the step going forward, maybe you've gone as far as you can. Maybe you've taken your six steps, but the next step for you might just be worship. Like putting your face on the ground or lifting your hands in the air or doing something that makes you feel a little bit silly. I'm just saying. 